nothing encapsulates you know the whole the whole truth rather what we have is a state of being inter being there's complete non obstructedness everything completely interpenetrates you know everything else and that's uh, only possible if everything including the four noble truths are empty of any self nature zen master haekwon Stanley Lombardo first started to practice with Zen master Sungsan in 1978. He received Inca from him in 1992 and transmission in 1998. An emeritus classics professor at the University of Kansas, he's known for his translations of the Iliad, Odyssey, Aeneid, and the Divine Comedy. He also co-authored a translation of the Tao Te Ching. He is the editor or co-editor of three of Zen Master Sungsan's books, Bone of Space, Only Don't Know, and The Ten Gates. And he also co-edited a Zen source book, an anthology of many of the traditional documents from China, Korea, and Japan that shaped the Zen tradition. He is a founding member of the Kansas Zen Center in Lawrence, Kansas. Where he teaches alongside his wife, Zen Master Bon Hay, Judy Roitman. You are listening to Sit, Breathe, Bow, a podcast for practitioners. Each week, leading Buddhist teachers share life experiences and insights to help guide your meditation practice, as well as your life off of the cushion. I'm your host, Ian White Mar. This podcast is sponsored by the Quanum Online Sangha. A virtual Zen practice community of the International Quantum School of Zen. Members of the online sangha meditate together, study with teachers, and participate in workshops and courses to develop their practice. We have launched a study group for people interested in gaining a deeper understanding of the sutras and scriptures most important to the Zen tradition. And listeners of Sit, Breathe, Bow are able to try a month for only seven dollars. By using the promo code SBB when you sign up. To find out more, visit quantumzenonline.org/studygroup. So, Stan, I was thinking about your teaching and who you are as a person, and I was reminded of I've only sat a retreat with you once. It was about twenty years ago, and. At that time, you were just about to release your translation of the Odyssey, and you were you were doing like a little bit of market research with the with the group right after uh, in the circle talk after the retreat, and you had two covers that you were sort of going between, and I, one I think was, if I'm remembering correctly, was a woman and a child, and who I'm assuming was. Penelope and Telemachus, and the other was uh, the Earth taken from space. So, like a, I guess a big journey home. And when I was thinking about you and the publication of the Odyssey, well, I was just kind of struck by the idea that you know here Odysseus is he's trying to get home, but in a lot of ways he's very close. But it takes him ten years anyway. And I, I don't know if any of this has any relationship to. 
how you teach Zen, but it just seemed like the great pilgrimage of, um, you know, somebody who's trying to come home. Yes, actually, I've published a piece. I imagine it's maybe 15 pages long. The title is uh, Homer's Light, the Odyssey, Koan. And I use the term Koan instead of Kongan because it's in uh, more common uh, usage. And this return home, which is the theme of the Odyssey, you're absolutely uh, right in uh, defining the theme of the Odyssey as Odysseus' struggle to return home. The word for that in Greek is nostos, N-O-S-T-O-S. It was shown in 1978, yes, I am a scholar, by Douglas Frame, another scholar, that the word nostos is cognate, closely related to the word noos, which means mind. And so Odysseus nostos, his finally returning home, is the same as his finding his original mind. And this happens in his late night interview, you might say, with Penelope, who tests him, who tests his mind. And it's not until she's absolutely convinced that this is Odysseus, this is Odysseus's mind, that his nostos, his homecoming, uh, is complete. So as you know, a, a, a kongan consists of a, a statement of the case, and then perhaps a poem and a commentary, and then some questions. So in the Odyssey of Kohan, I present the entire text of the Odyssey, the story of Odysseus' return home, as the statement of the case. And I do have a, a poem with it, which I can't quite remember now, but it's mostly stolen from Mumon. Uh, and I acknowledge that uh, in, in favor. <laughs> um, Odysseus' mind and his homecoming, are they the same or different? They were a standard, you know, koan right. uh, question. One of the first things I, I translated, the uh, poem by, a fragment of, a long fragment of a poem by uh, Parmenides, an early Greek um, kind of shamanistic uh, poet. It begins, the horses that take me to the ends of my mind were taking me now. And that didactic poem, which is cast in a quasi-epic um, mode, uh, is also a search for original mind. So yes, there are some classical Greek texts, and both of these are very early. Homer stands at the very beginning of the Greek uh, literary tradition around the year 800, and Parmenides is only a couple of hundred years uh, after that. So before uh, Plato and Aristotle and all of those people who developed what we know to be, take to be you know, Greek philosophy you know, at its best, there was this investigation of you know, what is mind? Uh, that I think are uh, implicit in these early texts. Yeah. Now, you have done all of this translation work. You are, I mean, your career is um, 
literature text and you're also you know a zen master a teacher of the zen tradition which really right from the start is saying you know this is special transmission outside of the scriptures so i think sometimes there's an anti-intellectual uh, or it can't that can occur right there's this you don't need the text you don't these these are only going to hurt you etc cetera, etc cetera. and i'm wondering as someone who has given his life to really working with text and understanding text you know how you've found balance how you found insight and and how you've also not been attached to the text so originally these texts were direct oral transmissions so Homer composed his poems several centuries uh, before writing uh, was in use in Greece. And Parmenides, um, a couple of centuries later, writing existed, but it was never a primary form of transmission. If we had had audio recordings, we wouldn't have needed writing. So you were doing a great service, Ian. <laughs> Uh, we don't have to write any of this down. <laughs> but there were no digital recordings you know, when Buddha spoke. And if Subhuti hadn't remembered them all and dictated them to some scribes, we, we wouldn't have them at all. Mm -hmm. So these texts are original transmission in Buddhism, not the original transmission that was oral. You know, without the aid of writing, but we would not have that teaching without all of these texts. We wouldn't have the words of Buddha without all of those texts, or the words of all the great Zen masters from Bodhidharma up to a um, hundred years ago. Uh, there were no recordings you know, when um, Mangong was teaching. Um, Maybe there were some. You would know more about this than I would. But certainly 150 years ago, everything up until that time would not exist uh, without written texts. So we have to study uh, these, these texts in order to get the teachings of uh, our ancestors. But you're right. Ultimately, these texts or this recording or any direct oral transmission you know, cannot help you. You cannot rely on the words of others, and you have to see directly yourself. And I had a strong experience with Zen Master Sung San that uh, his transmission, although it was spoken, came from you know, beyond speech, that it was his uh, energy that he transmitted uh, directly uh, to us that uh, was his real teaching. Uh, not all of the words uh, that he uttered, but uh, his living presence. But yes, I'm a scholar, and so uh, I study the texts, and my hope is that in my translations, I bring them alive. Uh, in my translations, I'm not uh, ever aiming at some perfectly accurate literal translation. I'm always trying to perceive the mind that is behind these words, and to present that mind as directly 
uh, as I can uh, through language. If my translations were submitted, uh, you know, as um, an examination, you know, in uh, a school examination, and they were graded by, say, a standard classics professor, I would get a B minus. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what I aim for. Well, literal translations never convey the spirit. Yeah. You have to recreate. You have to recreate the original mind, the original spirit, uh, and bring it alive, you know, for current audiences. And I always translate for performance. So the texts that I translate were originally performance, performances that were transmitted for generations by performers. So in translating Homer, for instance, I'll read it out loud in Greek, the passage that I'm translating expressively, and then try to imagine it as a performance in English. And when I finish the passage, I would try it out as a performance. Uh, so um, most of the uh, hours I've put into my career have been in live performances for audiences you know, all over the country, in fact, all over, all over the world, and, um, and doing recordings uh, as well. So I'm always trying to make the speech live. That's the entire enterprise. And um, in fact, I no longer think of them as texts, mm. you know, physically uh, on a page. Uh, it's just something to hear, to listen to, to absorb directly. Now, I feel like that, to me, makes a lot of sense when it's narrative, right? When you've got something like the, the Odyssey or the Iliad. But when you're dealing with something like the Diamond Sutra, um, how, do you, how do you take that text and make it live? I think in exactly the same way. Uh, that is, you imagine it being preached. Mm -hmm. for the first time as live words. You imagine it as a performance, as living language, and translate it that way. Hmm. You do have to be very careful when you do this, that you're not just getting into your own imagination. Um, that is, you're trying to get a direct transmission from the author of the Diamond Sutra. Uh, that's how I would, I've never translated the Diamond Sutra. In fact, I haven't translated any sutras. This is a good idea, Ian, a new <laughs> career. <laughs> I knew I wanted to do this interview with you. Well, you and I uh, did something recently on the Heart Sutra. And, the, and then I, I also saw that you did, a, um, you did the Heart Sutra again for the Kansas Zen Center. I watched it and I thought it was great. Actually, I'll put it in the show notes for people so that they can find the Kansas Center, uh, Zen Center uh, YouTube page. But you have worked with these texts, these Zen texts, and I'm wondering, I'm wondering if there was a moment where you were maybe, let's say, the Heart Sutra. You were working with the Heart Sutra, and it ceased to be a text and became, you know, there were it. it you were able to see the, the livingness of it. Yeah. Well, of course, we chant these texts. We chant the mm -hmm. Heart Sutra. Yeah. And after a while of chanting, without any special effort, you have it memorized. You have it uh, by heart, Yes. we used to say. So when you have something uh, by heart, 
it uh, occupies your consciousness in a completely different way than reading a text. Uh, we chant the Heart Sutra uh, in the Sino-Korean uh, and uh, in English. And I think the best way to you know, really absorb uh, the Heart Sutra uh, is to learn what each word in the Sino-Korean uh, means uh, and absorb it directly uh, that way. It, it doesn't take a tremendous amount of effort uh, to do that. So, you know, I have an interlinear, word-for-word -word interlinear uh, translation of uh, all of our chants. It's on the Kansas Zen Center uh, website. And there's something about the um, original language. Of course, Chinese is perhaps not the original language of the Heart Sutra. It's more likely uh, Sanskrit. But there's a Sanskrit original translated uh, into Chinese. But let, let's take the Chinese as being close enough. It's, it's what we have. And, you know, the Chinese translators of the Sanskrit texts were extremely meticulous. Um, and I think they were meticulous not only uh, in, a, in a philological sense, we have to get the exact meaning of this uh, Sanskrit word. I think they were very sensitive to how it comes across directly in Chinese when it's, uh, when it's chanted. Uh, so our Korean Heart Sutra is actually simply the Korean pronunciation of uh, Chinese. And you know, there are many pronunciations of Chinese depending on where in China you, know, you lived and so forth. I think we can take that as, as a primary text that can, if you know what each word means and as you chant it, uh, it can really get in your heart. And that's the idea of chanting um, and chanting it for, for years uh, on end, and it becomes a part of you. And that's uh, quite different from reading a text. Uh, studying a text is a little better, but performing it, uh, I think, is it's really the sine qua non, the that which out not, uh, as far as you know, you're the heart sutra and uh, in fact, all of our chants are. And the morning bell chant is another wonderful uh, example of this. Uh, it's just an outstanding example of uh, you know, direct uh, Buddhist uh, teaching um, and uh, different schools of Buddhist teaching and you know, combining Pure Land and Avatamsaka uh, and Zen. Uh, it's, uh, these, these are meant to be studied, uh, learn exactly you know, what you're saying with uh, each word and uh, let it penetrate your core. Yeah. You know, it's funny for me. Um, well, the heart sutra is very famous for the form is emptiness. Emptiness is form line. Yeah. But I think for me personally, it was this moment. <laughs> it was this moment where, and I'm just going to read the translation that you and I both chant, uh, which is, uh, you know, there's no suffering, no origination, no stopping, no path, no cognition, also no attainment with nothing to attain. And when I, I remember when I realized that was the Four Noble Truths, but kind of refuting the, not refuting them, but just saying that they were empty. Yes, a big difference. <laughs> yeah. And 
I, there was this moment of kind of mind expanding. <laughs> I was yeah. like, oh, right, right. There's no, all, even the four noble truths are empty. And I sort of found myself understanding that the tradition that I'm in a little bit better in that moment. Yeah, that, that's, that's wonderful, Ian. And that's what the chants are all about. Yeah, it, and it, it really happened while we were chanting it. And it's funny because every time we chant it now, I still sort of, when we get to that part, I'm like, yeah. <laughs> it's a really special part to it. And it, it's funny, the form is emptiness, emptiness is form. I don't know if I just, you know, I, I get it. I just, it's not, it doesn't do the same thing for me. But um, mm -hmm. I... Yeah, form and emptiness are pretty abstract. But when you come to the Four Noble Truths, uh, then uh, that's going to have a different effect on you as a Buddhist. Yeah. I, I've, I feel like we've always been taught as Buddhists that the Four Noble Truths are this, you know, foundational thing. It's sort of where you start and, and uh, it all comes to that. And then here come, you know, the Heart Sutra comes along and it's like, yeah, and even that's empty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which was just kind of an amazing for me, anyways. People, no, no, to this I'm glad you've had that experience, and yeah, I would, I would, uh, I would suppose and and hope that many other people have had, you know, that experience with, with the Heart Sutra. Um, there's nothing that um, opens your mind, nothing better to open your mind than the teaching of emptiness, shunyata no self-nature, which means that everything is completely open, transparent to everything else. And that can be life-changing. Yeah. Do, do you want to say a little bit more to that? Because I, I feel like people find emptiness confusing or, you know, it, it feels very opaque to a lot of people. I, I think they also interpret yeah. it as void. Yeah, that's ironic. That emptiness should be opaque. Mm, no, right. <laughs> <laughs> should be perfectly transparent. Right. <laughs> and uh, that's the idea. Um, that nothing interferes with anything else. Uh, not even the Four Noble Truths. Nothing encapsulates you know, the whole, the whole truth. Rather, what we have is a state of being that, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh coined a word called this state of being inter-being. And, and that's a wonderful word. And I'm pretty sure it's original uh, with him. So there's complete non-obstructedness. Everything completely interpenetrates you know, everything else. And that's uh, only possible if everything, including the four noble truths, are empty of any self-nature. And as I said in the um, Heart Sutra class, uh, that phrase, uh, of self-nature, uh, has been uh, omitted. Uh, it's definitely there in the Sanskrit, and I think this is um, in Svabhava in Sanskrit. So towards the very beginning of the chant, empty of svabhava, 
the Chinese translators, as um, you know, wonderful and meticulous as they were, somehow dropped that phrase. And again, we're not completely sure uh, about the transmission of the Heart Sutra. Um, some scholars think that originally it's Chinese, and the Sanskrit text that we have is a back translation from the Chinese. And we say back translation because uh, all of the other texts are, are, you know, translations from the Chinese, from the Sanskrit. The Chinese scholars have made these great uh, decades-long pilgrimages to India to study there and bring back texts and uh, a translation project that was two centuries long. Mm. Um, that was all founded on Sanskrit texts, but we're not sure about the Heart Sutra. It may have been originally Chinese. And then the Sanskrit text that we have was a translation back from the Chinese. Um, but I think that's, uh, that svabhava, that empty of self-nature, is very important to understand you know, what emptiness is, that nothing has its own solid, permanent, individual nature. Uh, and that's an early Buddhist teaching, you know, the three marks of existence. The third mark is an-atman, no self, which is in strong contradiction to all the other Indic schools of uh, philosophy where atman you know, has, is, is uh, primary uh, in their teachings. The idea of a permanent existing eternal soul that you have to discover and that's the purpose of spiritual practice, is to realize uh, your Atman. And here comes the Heart Sutra, uh, expanding on the early Buddhist teaching of an-Atman, you know, no self, no permanent nature, no individual you know, kernel, uh, which encapsulates you. Rather, you are, like everything else, completely open to everything else. Now, there's an apocryphal story about the Heart Sutra where when it was first, when monks first heard it, a great portion of them died or, or something like that. <laughs> and I'm, I'm yeah. trying to figure out, or maybe, you know, like what would cause them such, uh, <laughs> so much distress <laughs> when they hear this? You know, because now, of course, it's quite common to us. And so yeah. what was the, the breakthrough that was just like? Yeah, so the, the Heart Sutra is a refutation of the Abhidharma. Mm -hmm. That is the dominant school of Buddhist philosophy, um, which was actually formulated over a period of centuries. Highly philosophical, very categorical. Um, any philosophical uh, categories, uh, form and emptiness, uh, you know, are two of them, and others come up uh, in the Heart Sutra. Um, Buddha is said to have um, preached the Abhidharma to his um, mother, Maya, in the Tushita heaven, or one of the lower heavens that she would come down to, uh, for three months during the monsoon season. Uh, but then every day after he preached it to his mother, he would come down and give uh, a diluted version to Subhuti. So it's Subhuti who recorded you know, all of this uh, teaching. 
And it became uh, canonical. And it was a very complicated philosophical system. Uh, and it was absolutely dominant uh, in Buddhism. So the Heart Sutra, which is sometimes called the Heart Attack Sutra, because it gave a heart attack to these monks you know, when they first heard it, because it step-by-step step systematically refuted the entire philosophical system that was the foundation of Buddhism. So those who didn't die of a heart attack, uh, you know, rebelled in, you know, some way. Um, but this is the foundation of Mahayana uh, Buddhism. Uh, and it's, it's um, the earlier uh, form, sometimes is called uh, Theravadan. Uh, I think it's better to use the term uh, Abhidharma uh, for the uh, the earlier Buddhist uh, philosophical uh, system that was truly dominant for for centuries. Oh, you know that's really interesting. I hadn't really heard of that as a distinction. That's a great way of saying it because I feel like the Theravadan stuff that's today is you know its own tradition that's also quite different. Yeah, it, it was quite a revolution. So when they they heard this refutation, they were just saying it just caused them distress. And they said, "Oh my God!" Yeah, <laughs> I, I doubt that any of them actually died of heart attacks. Right, but, but then it's it, a great story. <laughs> but then it's become this sort of foundational piece for us. And I I enjoy, I enjoy the well for Mahayana Buddhism. Right. Yeah. So Zen Zen is part of Mahayana, of course. Right. Well, you know, and um, that's we, we no longer use the, the term Hinayana. Hinayana right. means a lesser vehicle. Instead, we speak of Theravadan or Abhidharma. Right. So Mahayana is sort of a self-aggrandizing uh, uh, term, um, the great vehicle. So I, I, I love the fact that the text is there. It's almost like a reminder to us as we're doing our own practice. And and I guess this is how I see the text, that even though we say that the transmission exists outside of the scriptures, it feels like I can all, I can get lost in, in the weeds of my own <laughs> my own practice as well. <laughs> and the, the the text can exist almost as a mirror to me, right? Wait, we're yeah. you know, reflecting back rather than sort of clinging to them so much as as they can sort of maybe recorrect my You know, if you, if you approach them not as canonical texts, but uh, simply as the words of a great teacher, mm -hmm. then it becomes living language rather than, you know, something that has been canonized. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, a classical text and so forth. That if it's not uh, brought to life somehow uh, within yourself in, uh, and in your own practice, then it's certainly not serving its original purpose. So this leads me to another <laughs> question. Now, you also helped Zen Master Sung Song with the book Bone of Space, which has been the hardest one for, for me to figure out how, how to use, how to... How to how it can be helpful? I, I sort of open it up and I'm like um, I get lost instantly, and I'm wondering for those of us who are in this tradition and who have seen this book, um, how how can these poems feel so sometimes just like I, I just get lost so quickly and, and yeah, how can it help? Uh, well, you know, Zen Master Sung San, like 
probably most Zen masters, was always composing uh, poetry. It's, a, it's an old uh, tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't know how I came across them all, but somehow I, I collected them all. And, um, you know, I, I had it published. And then, you know, he, he wrote some poems uh, after, and I forget who else, did a later edition and included, you know, those, uh, those later poems. Uh, so they're intended uh, to be uh, teaching uh, pieces, um, not quite uh, kongans, but um, maybe almost as inscrutable sometimes mm-hmm. um, as as kongans. Uh, I rewrote them slightly uh, because sometimes they were in true pidgin English uh, in those uh, early days, but uh, I, I tried to say as close as I could, you know, to his original language. And of course, I ran them all by him. Um, whenever I, I did a retreat with him, he would pull me out of the retreat, say, ah, let's look at poetry book. <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> he really wanted them out there, you know. And so, right. so I just kind of, I served as, you know, the compiler uh, or uh, editor. Um, they're all, they're quite different from one another. Uh, you, you, you couldn't, you know, it, they're hard to classify. Uh, some of them, uh, are very personal. Uh, some of them are simply well, what you might call dharma, you know, uh, uh, teaching. Um, and as I said, there's a, a long tradition of uh, such such poetry. Um, if the poem speaks to you, then really let it speak and try to absorb it and memorize it. Um, and if it doesn't, just move on to the next one. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't think the book is used much, um, you know, in uh, in our teaching. Uh, every now and then, I'll you know refer to one, uh, you know, in my own teaching. But I don't think they were uh, meant to be uh, teaching vehicles, rather than, uh, or, or but what they were intended to be were kind of insights into his soul, because that that's what. You know, poems such as this, poems that are not simply didactic poems, laying out, uh, you know, and formulating uh, teaching, uh, but they were from the heart. They were from his own experience, um, his experience, uh, you know, of life. Um, and I think we have to take them uh, that way. And if, you know, they, you don't connect to them, I, I think that's fine. Um, I, I don't think it's, uh, it's necessary for any uh, Zen student in our school or teacher to you know, really absorb these poems and uh, uh, you know, use them to teach or think of them you know, as primary teaching. It's kind of another side of his personality. But, you know, I think sort of phrasing it that way actually is quite helpful. Uh, I think I was trying to, to have it exist within um, some sort of teaching system rather than as an insight into the life of somebody. Yeah, kind of personal lyric. I, th- I think that's, that's the way to take them. Right. So as we're just sort of wrapping up, I'm curious about how, how people can take these texts into their heart, if there's if there's some sort of practical advice, you, you've you've given us this idea of um, thinking of them, using them as almost live performances. Yeah, 
is there anything else you would invite us to do? Well, I could say two things. Um, first, find the best translation uh, that you can. And by the best, I mean the one that seems to you to be in the most natural form of English. Hmm. Uh, I recommend Red Pines translation, for instance, of you know the Diamond mm-hmm. uh, Sutra. Um, and then the other piece of advice, so yeah, find, find the best translation. If you're not sure what it might be, ask someone who might know. And by best, I, I, you know, I don't necessarily mean the most accurate. Um, so you, you have to search around for yourself. What seems really readable to you? You can re- relate to this as you know, teaching from a human being and not as a canonical text. The other thing is to read them out loud. Uh, to read them as if you're reading to a child, um, uh, not in a you know simplifying, condescending sort of way, the way some people read to children, but as something that's exciting that you know the audience uh, wants to hear, and kind of putting your heart you know into uh, the text. Uh, so you always you know have to come meet a text halfway. Um, Again, that, that's my philosophy of, of translation. I'm not simply decoding you know, uh, a foreign language, but uh, trying to experience it as part of my heart and soul and, and life. So I think that's, to me, that's the only way that makes sense you know, in approaching you know, the, the, the Buddhist texts, uh, using you know, your, your imagination, you know, your heart and um, approaching them that way. Try to bring them to life. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sit, Breathe, Bow. I hope you found the conversation with Zen Master Hei Kuang encouraging and helpful for your practice. You can find out more by visiting the website for the Kansas Zen Center at kansaszencenter.org. I'll include a link for the Zen Center and some of uh, Zen Master Hei Kuang's books in the show notes. A special thanks to our sponsor, the Quantum Online Sangha. Listeners of Sit, Breathe, Bow are able to try a month of the Zen Study Group for only $7 by using the promo code SBB. The study group offers a close reading of the sutras and scriptures most important to the Zen tradition. To find out more, visit quantumzenonline.org slash studygroup. And don't forget to use the promo code SBB when you check out. And please consider subscribing and leaving a review of this podcast. It helps introduce us to new listeners. I am your host, Ian Whitemar, and I hope you'll join me again next week. <laughs>